0: Hello, and welcome to The Bunker. You'll need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Dick Boffalian. China's global ambitions are extensive. Their Belt and Road Initiative, also known as the New Silk Road, is one such project that aims to connect China with Europe and the global south. This includes building things like railways, highways, and energy infrastructure, as well as funding special economic and industrial zones. Now, regardless of Western skepticism about China's global motivations, it's an ambitious plan which will come at a high cost. So how will they pay for it? In her new book, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambitions, writer Zhong hu Zoe Liu breaks down exactly how China funds these policies, specifically through the use of sovereign wealth funds. Zoe joins me now to discuss China's ambitions, how their approach differs from other global powers, and what the rest of the world gets wrong about China's philosophy. Welcome Zoe.
1: Thank you for having me, Deepak.
0: And as a writer who covers Africa, I'm constantly being asked about China's ambitions on the continent, specifically through its Belt and Road Initiative. Now, firstly, why do you think there is such interest in China's global relationships at this time?
1: I think the success story of China's rise, you know, the rise of China in the global system, both economically and geopolitically, has been an inspiring story, especially for countries in the African continent. You know, right now, over perhaps... Uh, slightly shorter than 40 decades, China has transformed itself from one of the poorest countries in the world to become the number two economy in the world. It earned itself the name of the world's factory. And on top of that, China also has rich culture. It has massive human talent. So from that perspective, I think it's perhaps the economic success of China as well as the Chinese government and the China, the Communist Party of China has been successfully presenting China's model as an alternative to the West or the so-called Washington Consensus. So from that perspective, perhaps that's the essence of China's attractiveness or why you know African countries in particular is interested in China's model. And if I may, I would also want you to add a little bit, since you cover Africa, You know, I, uh, people talk a lot about uh, China's aid and investment, especially in the context of Belt and Road Initiative and China's investment or China's even expansion in Africa. But I would want to say that the story of China's aid to Africa, and I emphasize aid in particular, started actually in the 1950s, when China was one of the poorest countries in the world. So, from that perspective, you know, China started its relationship, especially aid in terms of economics relationship with Africa, not because China became a more affluent country, but despite of its wealth.
0: That's really fascinating. That sort of long-standing relationship you're sort of saying has helped build that sort of understanding that has sort of carried that relationship up until the present. And kind of just to stick on Africa for a moment, do you sort of see that relationship continuing to grow as many African countries are sort of being pressured to sort of look away from China and build those relationships again with other Western countries?
1: I would caution against the idea that African countries may not necessarily have their own agency or any idea that might underestimate African countries' own ability to make choices. And the reason I say that is because from a historical perspective, African country has basically fought a hard-worn liberation from colonialism. And this gives China an opportunity to present itself as, on the one hand, China suffered from Western uh, imperialism, and then on the other hand, China has never really colonized Africa. So that's one sort of additional attractiveness, if you will, for the China model. And this provides some sort of solidarity or baseline shared common ground between China and members of the African continent.
0: I'm sort of really interested in how over time the battlefield in which nations compete sort of shifts. And if we look back to 2013, when the Belt and Road Initiative was first announced, the world looks very different than it does today how would you describe china's current foreign policy focus
1: in a depot, you are right back in 2013 when the belt and road initiative was launched the world was very different and if i can take a step back i would uh, start with what china's ambition was back then at the beginning of 2013 president xi jinping took power and since then he has been ruling china of now entering into his third term unprecedentedly, right? So back in 2013, at that time, the global environment was certainly much nicer to China compared with it is now today. But the problem really came from Inside of China. And at that time, China was suffering from the massive 4 trillion renminbi stimulus in, uh, during the global financial crisis. Now, during the global financial crisis, that 4 trillion stimulus lifted the global economy to a certain extent. At least, you know, China was not one of the draggers at that time, but it actually created a lot of unintended consequences, one of which was the expansion of the shadow banking system, as well as the expansion of the local government finance vehicle, which created lots of problems with regards to local government debt. And a lot of this really wrap into the story about China's overcapacity issue. You know, four trillions, a lot of money. And it created a lot of infrastructure investment, yes, but also unused road leads to nowhere or hollowed apartment buildings, and basically it's created a lot of domestic overcapacity issue. And that was actually the original motivation for President Xi Jinping to launch the Belt and Road Initiative. So in other words, the original agenda for the Belt and Road Initiative was not necessarily to become a geopolitical or geoeconomic power projection platform, but really was to use the international market to solve China's domestic problem.
0: So for our listeners who don't know, what exactly is a sovereign wealth fund?
1: There is actually not a universal agreement in terms of what is or what is not a sovereign wealth fund. But generally speaking, scholars would agree that a sovereign wealth fund are government-owned investment institutions that are funded by natural resources or capital surpluses to for the purpose of intergenerational wealth transfer, or to cushion commodity price volatilities, or even for domestic development purposes. Now you see we are really clustering a whole bunch of different institutions, perhaps with different functions, under this whole umbrella of a sovereign wealth fund.
0: And you write about sort of how China's sovereign wealth fund differs from what we traditionally understand as a sovereign wealth fund. What are the main differences?
1: They are different along three lines. The first one would be China can be considered as an outlier in the existing sovereign wealth fund universe. Because if you look at you know the top 10 or top 50 uh, largest sovereign funds in the world. Most of them are actually hosted or funded by commodity exporting economies from you know Norway to United Arab Emirates, Qatar or Saudi Arabia. These funds there is economic reason to for these countries these commodity exporting countries to establish a sovereign wealth fund because they need to have basically like a big piggy bank to manage their oil resources, right? So the function for this commodity-based sovereign wealth fund is really A, for intergeneration wealth transfer, because one day you are going to eventually run out of your God-given natural resources. B, uh, commodity prices are volatile, and you need to have a cushion to hedge against volatilities, right? China is an outlier because China is the largest commodity importer in the world. So... From that perspective, if China imports a lot of oil and gas and other commodities, where is the money coming from? Obviously, it's not oil and gas money. And this leads to my second point, which is China's sovereign funds. The reason I call China's, the book is titled the sovereign funds, not a sovereign wealth fund is specifically because I argue that China's sovereign funds are not wealth-based, but Is leveraged. The reason why it is leveraged is because in the process of creating China's sovereign funds, the government used explicit leverage by issuing special purpose bond, or used implicit leverage to increase the risk profile of its foreign exchange asset, and. um, Those two approaches involve not just financial engineering, but also political engineering. So they are different. In other words, China's unlike those commodity-based sovereign funds that are capitalized by the monetization of natural resources, which are God-given unencumbered wealth, China's sovereign funds are different because it involves the use of leverage. And then finally, the last point in terms of difference is that there is a different level of transparency. Yes, most sovereign wealth fund or sovereign funds are, are not necessarily the best transparent funds or in terms of governance, but China's funds are particularly non-transparent, especially for those managed by the state administration of foreign exchange or the foreign exchange reserve management arm of China's central bank. Some of the funds are not even listed on their end. Any- report
0: now all of this is happening sort of in the middle of a housing crisis rapid deflation with that context how is the use of sovereign wealth funds in this way seen within china
1: the Chinese economy right now is not in its best shape. You know, how how this relates to China's sovereign funds. Uh, I would say that if we look back to the first time when China used the foreign exchange reserve to create a sovereign fund, It was actually during a crisis. That crisis was perhaps even more urgent, I would argue, than the current crisis that we are seeing because the Chinese banking system in particular have long suffered from non-performing loan issues, especially throughout the 90s. And in the early 2000s, Around the time when China joined the WTO in December 2021, certain measures showed that China's major state-owned commercial banks were uh, having non-performing loans as high as more than 20%. So that basically put those state-owned commercial banks in the territory of insolvent. It's not just a liquidity issue, it's insolvent. So at that time, in order to address a potential rapidly developing banking crisis in China, People's Bank of China created uh, this institution called Central Huijin and used Central Huijin to recapitalize Chinese state-owned commercial banks and by leveraging China's foreign exchange reserves. And Central Huijin, since it it was created in 2003, has become not just the shareholder-in-chief of major Chinese financial institutions, but also a crisis management tool. If I remember it correctly, it was around 2015, there was a regional medium-sized bank called Baoshang Inhang went in trouble. And what ended up happening was, it's not, you know, news headlines said, oh, you know, the the People's Bank of China is going to step in and bail out this bank. Um, But it was not the the PBOC, actually, it was Central Huijin. And throughout multiple crises happening in China, inside China's financial sector, from a banking crisis to crisis in China's stock brokerage firms, China, Central Huijin actually has played quite a successful role. So from that perspective, if we are talking about whether China has the capacity to address a potential crisis In the state-owned banking and financial system, I would say yes, and the Central Huijin has a pretty good track record. But uh, the problem right now we are facing is not a financial crisis happening at the central government level, but mostly it is happening in the real estate sector, in the property market, and that is heavily intertwined with local government and the local government financing vehicle as well as the hidden debt. And that also spill over to another segment in the financial sector, the trust industry. So what we are talking about now is not the formal or the public or the more transparent aspect of the financial system, but more of the shadow banking system. On the one hand, a shadow banking system, by definition, there is a lack of transparency, And then on the other hand, because of the involvement of local government and because local government really dependent on local government financing vehicle to raise capital, it's now becomes a very thorny issue that perhaps China's financial institution has never experienced before.
0: And in your book, you describe your approaches to follow the money, find the politics. And why did you feel it was important to shed light on this?
1: Yeah, thank you for for asking uh, this question, DePaul. The reason I use this approach is because I was quite puzzled. You know, this goes back to your earlier question with regard to how China's sovereign funds are different from other so-called sovereign wealth fund. Uh, you know, because I was curious. You know, given that China is the largest commodity importing economy and it did not have the uh, natural resource revenue to finance or to capitalize a sovereign. Wells Fund, then where is the money coming from? So that's why I decided to take a look at these financial institutions, investigate their financial statement, their, their income statement, and look into their legal formation documents, as well as their investment filings in the United States, because there is, whenever there are investment, they need, they need to file reports to the SEC and all that. So by following the money, it allows me to identify Where the money comes from, who financed the creation of China's sovereign funds, and what are the people involved in these different institutions? So now when you talk about people, when you talk about different government institutions, obviously, one can identify the bureaucratic politics involved in the process.
0: We sort of started this conversation talking about the Belt and Road Initiative and I'm often sort of asked, you know, do I think, you know, this is an example of form of sort of neo colonialism? And I tend to sort of respond that again, it's it's very different to what we saw during the colonial era because it's up to individual African countries to decide for themselves what economic relationships they want to have with foreign countries. What do you think people get wrong about China's ambitions generally?
1: You know, Dipo, I think you are right. I think you and I share a very important common ground, which is to acknowledge and emphasize the agency and initiative of African countries on their own, right? And in terms of China's ambition, I think I would identify perhaps two common misconceptions based upon my conversation and the question that that I got. You know, the first one is people tend to equate China's ambition in a very broad term without recognizing that there is a difference between what the Chinese people want Versus the Communist Party of China and the party leaders and the Chinese government want. So there is a difference between the people's aspiration or their pursuit versus President Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, right? So that's the first one. I, I think it's perhaps very important to acknowledge when we Think about China. You know, China is a big country. It's 1.4 billion people. And there is a a fragmented system. And what the people want is different from what the government want. And I think, uh, or the party want. I think this this has been most vividly on display during COVID. Remember, there was a period of time uh, when on social media, there were images showing people's protests. And what did they protest? They said, we don't want COVID tests. We want food. Right. So, you know, I think that kind of difference should be acknowledged. And then the second common misconception is that we tend to only focus on China's or the Chinese government and the Communist Party of China's ambition without realizing that in order for their ambition to be materialized, they need to have the financial resources. It's not that, you know, they have a magic wand, poof, you know, the whatever they desire, they can, they can achieve without any budget constraints. They actually need money, especially now when the Chinese economy slows down and the Communist Party of China's ambition seems to be continually expand. So how are you going to find the money finance your expanding ambitions? That is also a question, right? So those would be, you know, like my two broad uh, assessment in terms of misconceptions.
0: I think that leads us sort of perfectly into the final question here. And that sort of looking to the future, how do you see China's ambitions expanding or perhaps contracting, based on the returns they've had to date, and also sort of based on what the average person in the country wants?
1: Uh, I think that is a difficult question to answer. Part of that is because I am genuinely concerned that the gap between what the people want and what the party and party leaders want. Under President Xi Jinping's leadership, that gap has increased and increased dramatically. The reason I am worried is because, you know, using data you can empirically observe, Chinese people's actual household disposable income growth has declined since President Xi Jinping came to power. In other words, over the past 10 years, Chinese people can materially experience. Not just a weakening of their household balance sheet as expressed through housing price depreciation, but also they are not earning less money, but they become less secure about their own economic future because multinational companies are not necessarily investing more in China. And that basically means high paying jobs are not growing. And uh, for a lot of these Chinese youth in particular, once they get out of college, their hope was to get a high-paying job working in a modern Western-style company. But those kind of op- opportunities seem to be closing. And as people's desire for lifestyle improvement or welfare improvement has not changed, right? But it seems that the Communist Party of China, under President Xi Jinping's leadership seems to be focusing a lot on Uh, self-sufficiency. And the idea is to not being dependent on the rest of the world, especially the West, but uh, make the rest of the world more dependent on China and making China an indispensable part of the global system. I think that speaks a lot to the party's ambition rather than what the Chinese people actually want.
0: Zoe, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker.
1: Thank you, Dipo, for having me.
0: Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word or support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get your episodes advert-free, in addition to a whole host of extras. I'm Diplofalion. Thank you for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Deepo Falloin. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.